time for your weekly dose of Wayne's Comics. Welcome to episode 518 of the Wayne's Comics Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This week I have a great fun and wonderfully informative conversation with Jake Gonzo from La Mano del Destino, a project that's currently going on on Zoop.gg. Like Gonzo, this book is very entertaining and very educational at the same time. It's about Lucha Libre wrestling, and I admit I'm not much of a wrestling fan, so this book still won me over, which says something. We talk about the history of the book and what the future is, including the second volume, which is what he's going to be working on very soon. I continue to work on my voice, so please be sure to pay attention to what Gonzo is saying. We had a little technical difficulty while we were talking. Sometimes there's a little interference with his voice as we talk. But if you need to, just turn the volume up a little bit and don't miss anything that he has to say. There's a lot to get to in this episode, so let's get on with the show. It's great to welcome to the podcast. Jay Gonzo is the name that's on the book. It's called La Mano del Destino. I hope I pronounced that right. And uh, Gonzo, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, yeah, how are you doing today? It's good to talk to you. I'm doing great. Uh, you are uh, uh, the latest in the creators that's on Zoop.gg, which is one of my favorite sites because I, I like what they do in providing the support that you get for them. You had, done, if I remember correctly, you had done Kickstarter before. Yeah, that's correct. I, I did the uh, the well the book the finished collected edition that we sent over to you. I think we sent you the top cow image version, but mm-hmm. that had begun life as the collected edition to uh, the Kickstarter version that I had done. So I, I um you know I don't know how much detail you want here, but I, I had done uh, a five issue miniseries. Uh, it took me ten years to do just for various reasons. Uh, when it was when I had finished, or, I'm sorry, it was six issue miniseries. Good God, I'm getting get my story straight uh six issue miniseries uh, issue six had come out in uh november of 2019 so uh 2020 was going to be the year i was going to go out and kind of tour with the whole series ready oh. to uh, ready to sell uh, we all know how that went so oh. uh so during the pandemic i decided oh i'm just going to do a, a trade paperback uh so i did a, a very nice kind of deluxe trade paperback via kickstarter it was a uh, bilingual flip book so it was all six issues in english on one side all six issues in Spanish on the other side. Hmm. Um, and it was like oversize on newsprint, uh, spot varnish cover, gloss, uh, gold foil, belly band, um, all these bells and whistles to the tune of about $40,000 uh, via Kickstarter that actually funded. And so uh, when, when you when you fund a, a $40,000 Kickstarter, some other uh, opportunities open up for you. Uh, one of which was uh, Image Comics was like, hey, let's let's do a version for for the direct market and so um i did an english only version for the direct market and that's the i guess kind of the publication history so self-publish kickstarter publish uh top cow image publish of of that version of it so yeah uh, i ran a a successful campaign during a pandemic which which uh, i think is kind of impressive now the thing that's happening right now is that you're on zoop.gg as we mentioned and this is for the second volume right that's correct yep uh and i should note uh, i'm still mid fulfillment 
of uh, the first Kickstarter uh, only because of like uh, COVID logistics reasons. I, 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 I can't even tell you how many dumb little things have gone wrong. Simple things like, you know, I, I can just go down to the store and buy, you know, ink. And apparently the ink I use isn't being made for the next two months or whatever. You know, so just, just dumb stuff. Um, but uh, but I am committed to fulfilling that before I even begin the Zoop project. But yes, when I was uh, what I thought was wrapping up my Kickstarter, Zoop approached me about doing series two there. And uh, like you said, the the uh, support is is really what sold me on Zoop is like having dealt with all of the logistics of the Kickstarter and all the headaches of a pandemic and a Kickstarter and supply chain <laughs> issues. When Zoop was like, hey, we handle all production fulfillment. I said, you're my guys. Uh, also, they're great people over there. Like, I, I know Eric. I, you know, I've met him, um, you know, hung out with him a bit. Jordan's a great guy. Like, they're, uh, they know what they're doing. They've done it for a lot of uh, companies before they lashed out on their own to do it. And, um, and I really appreciate the kind of curated aspect to Zoop, you know, making sure that it's not, they're not running 10 campaigns a month. They're not, you know, they're not flooding the market with just, uh, just numbers, you know, like, oh, we've got, you know, one of these has to hit or whatever. Like, they're committed to, supporting projects individually as they come out. And they, you know, that's why I, um, uh, that's why I'm doing it now is I was, I was scheduled in a slot to be there for January. Um, and, uh, unfortunately, you know, I thought, Oh, there's no way I'm going to be still fulfilling my Kickstarter in January. Uh, <laughs> but you know, that the train I had signed up to be, you know, that I bought a ticket for was leaving the station. <sighs> and so I, I, I'm on it. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's been a great experience. I mean, those guys are, are, are they're, they're, uh, you know, they're beating that drum. They're out there, uh, you know, promoting, promoting, promoting. And that's uh, having run a Kickstarter and having to like manage logistics, manage the production and be your promotions department. And then answering email questions and all of that sort of thing. It's just, um, it gets real overwhelming in a hurry. And, you know, and I, I still have to like do work to pay bills on top of that. So, um, them taking that, that load off of me has been, uh, you know, has been a blessing. Uh, I, I can't tell you how great it's been. Well, because I've talked with some people and they say the way that you should do the publicity is you do it when even to the level that you're uncomfortable with it. Oh, you yeah, should, yeah. You know, put uh, Facebook and Twitter and all these other things, do all this stuff as, you know, to where you're uncomfortable with it. But, you know, it seems to work that way. But the great thing is they're getting to do all that for you. So it allows you to focus on the book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the fact that I just have to make sure the book, you know, lives up to the, you know, honors the success of the original uh, series. Uh, and all I have to do is make sure it looks good. And it's and it's, you know, I, I gave them, I you know, uh, I know you got the digital issues, but the print issues that I did of the first series, like my comic looks and feels and even smells like an old comic book because I printed it on newsprint uh, or uncoated paper. You know, it, they're you know center stitch. They, they look, you know, it, it's meant to evoke the era in which it's set like these are not it happens in the 60s so i want it to like look and feel like an artifact from that time and so um i have a very you know and i have you know 30 years of, of graphic design and advertising experience so i'm very particular about my printing processes and papers and what have you so uh i was able to just give them the old comics and go this is what i need the comics to look and feel like and they're like yep can, can make that happen you know they'll, they'll hit any target you give for them uh mm -hmm. and and then i don't have to like i don't have to go on press checks i don't have to like look at you know proofs like I, uh, I can just head down, get back to the, to making comic books, which is fan freaking tastic. Mm -hmm. Did you ever, by the way, uh, see Alan Moore's book called Supreme? Uh, I did when it came out. And mm -hmm. so that's what, like mid nineties, late nineties, something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a minute. Um, 
like I, I uh, what I do remember though is the uh, uh, the image uh, 1963, right? Isn't that the ones that they did? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and those were kind of uh, a little more of of an influence on what I did with Lamano than than necessarily like uh, what what Moore did mm-hmm. with Supreme. Because the reason I bring it up is because you're in good company if you're doing what Alan Moore did. <laughs> And he did that. He did some of the pages, and the background of the pages were like they had been left out. You know, they were they were they were like kind of browning. The pages looked like, but it, the way they printed it that way, so that it looked like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a scanned in like old weathered paper that I have scanned in, and I use like <laughs> uh, as my background. And then I, I print everything, you know, on a newsprint. So there's a lot of gain with that too. And then mm. the the plates that I actually like, I've I've gone through and kind of distressed the printing process. And built it in a way that, like, I'm, I'm emulating the old crappy plates that they used to use in the 60s, you know, so there's a lot of picking and holidays. And then the blacks are a single plate that overprint everything so you can see the, the color behind the blacks, you know, and the blacks aren't quite 100%. And mm-hmm. um, it was, what's funny is the amount of work it takes to make something look kind of crappy and old is so much more work than if I just wanted it to look pristine and new. And originally, I kind of worried my pressmen where, like, you know, my printer would would be like, hey, man, I, I don't know what's up with these holidays. Like, I, I can't get rid of them. I'm like, oh, no, yeah, that's supposed to look like that. Like, so we, we ran a couple issues before. He's like, oh, yeah, that's fine. It's supposed to look like that, you know. But they're, those press guys are so dialed into perfection that they were trying to fix my imperfections I had baked in there. Um, yeah, I've even sold them on occasion where, like, uh, like, I'll have the trade paperback and people look at the cover. And they're like, oh, do you have one that doesn't have this, like, this picking on there? I'm like, no, they all have that picking on there. Like, that's deliberate. Like, like oh, and then you see the kind of, like, the gears click on them like oh okay i get what you're doing here <laughs> like that's it's a, it's a you know it's a crappy old comic look it's, you know it, it's supposed to look like someone had folded this up and put it in their back pocket you know that's right that's right that's that's uh, and you get that sense of 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 time with yeah. it which is really great so i like that very much and i have to tell you right from the start i have never been a big wrestling fan Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so for me, I came to this a little cold. Mm-hmm. I didn't know much about wrestling, and luckily, you provide a lot of information. I didn't know what lucha libre meant. Oh, okay. Even though I know a little bit of Spanish, of course, knowing a little Spanish doesn't help you to understand the, you know, the 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 specifics of what a phrase actually means. And that's free form wrestling. That that's what that stands for. I didn't realize that. So I learned a lot. And I actually, I think my appreciation and understanding of, of this kind of wrestling really went up with this. And I was, I have to say, I was gripped. Oh, thank you. Reading the story and, you know, getting into the character. And, you know, we, you explained a little bit of the background of the stuff. And so I, I realized, of course, the name of the book is La Mano del Destino, which is, of course, Spanish, if I'm not mistaken, for the Hand of Destiny. Yes, Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and, and the story is as much uh, about him as the character Lamano del Destino as it is about the actual hand of destiny at work in his life. So there's a you know, kind of a double meaning to to the name of the comic. And yeah, it was it was really my intent to kind of like honor the tradition of like Lucha Libre. Like I'm I'm a you know I'm a Chicano kid. Like I grew up in L.A. Yeah. Lucha Libre was they were always like my heroes. Those guys were uh, and and quintessentially like. Mexican heroes like I you know I'm uh you know I'm of Mexican descent but I, I grew up in Los Angeles and um you know it's, it's a rarity that like um that a nation can kind of be encapsulated in like a uh in like a figure you know I think it's kind of tantamount to like uh like Canada can kind of be summed up with like the Mountie you know what I mean like mm-hmm. like uh, Luchador is like a quintessentially Mexican thing and so it always felt kind of like uh, like a, a pride of ownership of like like those are my heroes like they're for me and you know people like me and, and uh 
And it also felt like a connection to my past because it is something that I would engage in, like, you know, at my Nana's house, we would like walk down and like take the, you know, what seemed like the mile long walk down to the bodega, which is probably like a block and a half. And the bodega was just filled with like all these great little, like, you know, cheap little like Lucha Libre toys and color forms and, and, and all this like Lucha Libre stuff. And I, you know, the, my grandparents' house and like, you know, uh, Pico Rivera and Montebello, those are places that like, um, they got the Spanish station better. Like the reception was better there. So I could like watch Lucha Libre movies there. And so it always felt like this connection to like my heritage. And then as I got older, like, and, and like I would see Lucha Libre pop up in American pop culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was always like kind of treated like a joke and like a punchline and kind of, you know, uh, in a broader sense, like, like Mexicans kind of get treated like a, like a, like a joke and a punchline in a lot of American pop culture or, mm-hmm. America is like fetishized Mexican poverty and violence to an unhealthy level. The, the kind of this creation of like a mono narrative they they seem to want to hold on to doggedly. But um, but I just you know like I got I got sick of seeing kind of like my heroes being treated like oh look at this dumb guy with a mask on you know and I'm like what are you talking about like these guys are great and so I really wanted to like um, celebrate uh, the pageantry and the uh, and the dynamism of something I've enjoyed as a child that is is. Uh, culturally resonant and personal for me and you know and broader than that like i wanted to express the beauty of my culture uh you know as a as a chicano kid uh you know as a chicano in america like i wanted to you know celebrate our beauty you know because because uh so much of being a minority involves kind of fighting your fight but you also have to like celebrate your beauty because that you know fighting your fight will afford you rights but like expressing your beauty kind of affords you dignity and and this is kind of like my pushback on that um that weird sepia tone brown that that Hollywood seems so enamored with when portraying like Mexico, um, and uh, yeah, so so uh, that was that was the impetus was kind of like getting the the thrill of Lucha Libre across as opposed to like um, uh, as opposed to any kind of uh, you know TED talk about the, like, the, the the thrill of Lucha Libre. Like I just like wanted to exemplify it more than I wanted to talk about it. You know. Hmm. It's interesting because I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, which is a very non-diverse <laughs> community. And I, I, I didn't get to meet diversity until I went to college in the Washington, D.C. area. And that's where I, I – so I, I, I don't – you know, for me, I didn't understand that the, 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 the perception is, is that this is – is kind of talking down. I just understood that it was a different culture. And of course I'm a big Batman fan. So for me, anybody wearing a mask and stuff is just sort of, that's what they do. When I was a kid in high school, I'd run around the community with a, with a Batman cape on. Oh, nice. I would run around with like a Lucha Libre mask on, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's a similar, you know, it, it is a, yeah, it's a, it, it's a similar uh, ethos. I would say like, I don't think that it's, particularly different but um but there are like there's a nuanced difference to uh kind of america like the american western uh Mm -hmm. paradigm of uh heroism uh as opposed to like the specifically mexican kind of like notions of of uh exemplary like or heroic people um and most of that is just kind of the uh you know the, the ethos of the people that kind of goes back to the the nature of kind of like class systems in in mexico that that Mm -hmm. That, that predate like, you know, Hernan Cortez and, and like it, it, the Spanish ever even showing up, like there was subjugation and, and kind of a, a stratum of, of caste system that existed within the Aztec empire before the Spanish show up and they just put themselves at the top of that. And so, uh, and that exists until like almost the 1940s. I mean, it really lasted a long time, even after like, you know, supposed democracy and stuff, there's a lot of kind of like colorism and classism 
and uh, and and I think kind of in the early 20th century, that was a thing that was getting kind of questioned, and and um, the kind of anonymous hero does away with kind of your inherent class identity and you're allowed to define yourself by action because so many of us, you know, uh, like 70% of Mexico is mestizo were mixed. And mm-hmm. so it's hard to say that we're victim or victimizer because we're as much conquistador as we are conquered. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, so eschewing your kind of inherent identity or obscuring that in replace of kind of like an action, like effect driven, you know, um, capacity allows for heroism. And, you know, you get heroes like Zorro or like mm-hmm. luchadors, like people who like, we're born to be one thing, but, but make the, the decision to, to obliterate that ego and then kind of become the hero or, or, or do the right thing instead of being the right person, I guess is probably the, the simplest way to put that mm-hmm. like American Western mythology specifically. Uh, and I say Western, like the, like Western culture, not like cowboys and Indians, although cowboys and Indians <clears throat> is kind of an example of that. Um, mm-hmm. But it is, uh, it is very uh, ego driven, right? Like, you know, King Arthur gets to pull the sword out because of who he is, not what he's done. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, here Hercules gets to, you know, wrestle, you know, with the gods because he, of who he is, not what he does. And there's a lot of kind of, uh, you know, even like Harry Potter is like, oh, he was, you know, born into being, you know, uh, you know, this, this, you know, chosen one. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, Mexican culture specifically, like with things like Luta Libre, uh, is about doing the right thing and not being the right person. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think that that's that kind of nuanced that that hasn't really been exemplified or portrayed uh, in expressions of kind of um, like Latino representation within the kind of broader American uh, uh, you know pop culture kind of you know gallery. So uh, I just wanted to kind of exemplify that and kind of explore those notions within my comic book. And this all sounds super academic and pedantic. And I should no. let people know this is this is uh, people who are listening. Um, this is a this is only like the the substructure of the story. Realistically, it's just dudes in mass beating on each other in a very fun, dynamic way. Like if you read the if you read the comic, like it, it you know, in as much as it is my kind of meditation on internalized respectability to politics of the Chicano diaspora, uh, on the surface, it is dudes in masks and capes beating on each other and in a lot of fun. But but you get a lot of the sense of that in you know that when you say that stuff it opens up a lot of that to me because like I said I'm not I, I spent a summer in Mexico City oh awesome. in Mexico when I was in college I there was a I, there was a what they call a study tour that I took to go through Mexico we went to Mexico City and Montemorelos and a whole bunch of other cities and stuff like that and I was interested in the culture and of course it was at that time this is twenty thirty years ago now it was a very different uh, country than it is now. And so, but for me, I was always fascinated by that because I, I'm always intrigued by other cultures and, and why people think and do things the way that they do. So that really, that, that kind of helps illuminate some of the stuff. If you read the book if, and you keep that in mind, that really is something helpful because, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I guess because of my the whole business about Batman and stuff, I don't <laughs> yeah. look at stuff as being less because somebody wears a mask and does and, and does the wrestling. And believe me, where I live in Florida, uh, wrestling is a huge deal. Oh yeah, well, uh, wrestling's a religion in Florida. Like, yeah, <laughs> for real. So for me, you know, and I don't happen to be a part of that, but this helped me really understand a lot of the the whys and 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 you do bring a lot of the points, especially. Yeah, of course, I'm not going to spoil it, but when you get to the end of the book, mm-hmm. the main character says a bunch of stuff that really illuminates 
this what you've been talking about and brings that to the forefront. I I I really like that. And you know, you leave it in such a way that I was like, oh man, I can't wait to see what you do next with that. Well, no well, well now I'm doing about. what's next, you know, which is good, fantastic. Good. Yeah. I'm so glad for that. Now see, one thing we need to make clear though is that you do everything except lettering. No, I do lettering right? too. No, I do everything. Oh, you do lettering. Oh, you yeah, do everything. Yeah. Okay. I do everything. I, I didn't do oh wow. Okay. So yeah. that's great. So man, this is your book. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I didn't know I could have help. No, I'm just kidding. I uh, <laughs> I always tell it. That's that's my joke. Um, yeah, I I just wanted it to get done, and I can mm-hmm. do everything. So I, you know, I I you know, I've spent you know, uh, my whole life being an artist. I went to the Orange County High School of the Arts, and then I went to school for graphic design. I worked in advertising forever. I worked for uh, Todd McFarlane for uh, you know four years, and mm. um, and so I've just you know, like I know production, and then I know like the the art part of it. Uh, and and so when it came time to do it, I was just like, well, I'll, I'll call in help where I need it. And uh, I just never needed help. Like I, I, you know, I used to letter the book for, I used to letter one of the books for Todd when I was there. I did all the production design. So putting the book together, getting it ready for print. Uh, I've done, I did coloring when I was, you know, Todd. And then I also, like I was doing comic art when I was just, even before I was there. But I, like I learned um, kind of industry standard stuff, you know, like I, I had, I had like theory, you know, and I knew kind of like there were ways to do things. And then when I got to, to work for McFarland, I got to learn like kind of the industry standard on how things can't, you know, are, are to be done. And so when it, when it, when I left McFarland, um, and, uh, I was out there, you know, trying to get other work. Um, I, uh, people, I had a bunch of stuff in a portfolio, one of which is like a few pages of this wrestling comic I had drawn. And it was the thing that like every editor was like, Oh, let me, like, what is this? And I would tell them about it. And, and eventually, um, Dark Horse was like, hey, let's maybe do this. So, like, why don't you work up a whole first issue and then your plan for like whatever this miniseries would be? I'm like, okay, cool. So I did the whole first issue and then I had the whole plan. And then Dark Horse ultimately passed, I think, because they knew the new 52 was happening. And they're like, yeah, we're, we're going to kind of batten down the hatches to weather this storm of like, you know, this flood of number ones that's coming, uh, um, which I didn't know, but I was encouraged to kind of like self publish by a bunch of different people. Mm-hmm. Um, and since I had, I had it was all set out and ready to go, I'm like, well, I guess I'll just do this myself. And I just never never needed any help. I mean, others than some kind of like, you know, business questions. But at that point I knew enough people in the industry, I could just, you know, text the right people and, and, and find out some business questions, but creation wise, like I just, I could do it myself. So I do it myself. Good. Well, you know what? That's great. Thanks. And when I wanted to do this podcast, the whole reason I did this podcast was because I was fascinated by the podcasting and and, and the, I always have a million questions I want to ask people. So this gave me the chance to do it. And I do everything in this podcast. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I I don't make the music, but I pick out the music and I, I, I put it all together myself. And uh, so I can understand that. I I did want to tell you that I really love the artwork. Oh, thank you. I just thought that it really, it's perfect for the story and the color. I mean, for me, the, oh, sorry, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll try. I'm going to tell you one other thing too. I was tremendously impressed by the writing. Oh, thank you. The surprise is a massive surprise about three quarters of the way through that shocked me. I oh, literally, nice. I was gasped. I said, oh, that can't be. And I, and I, I, you know, I love nothing better than when I go back and say, now, wait a minute. Did he set this up ahead of time? And I went back and looked, and I didn't realize all the th- setting up you were doing in the early issues to get to that place. And when I went back and looked, I said, that was nicely done. Oh, do thank you. Say, I really love that. Big, big surprise. There's a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get a hint at it. We can't really talk about it. <laughs> we can't talk about it, but he does something that I'm sure wrestling fans will never love. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there was 
there was a few key scenes and that that particular was like uh was always going to be the kind of point of the mm-hmm. i mean because you would talk about the big the things that he says at the end and like mm-hmm. you know it's um man you know like i don't know how to talk about this without talking about it <laughs> yeah. but that was always kind of like where it was going to end up i, I just had yeah. like i kind of knew where it was going to end and i knew sort of the 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 twist that were going to happen i had mm-hmm. set those up and uh, some other short stories I've been working on like years and years ago. Like I think I was in my twenties when I kind of had that idea for uh, what, what ultimately became that twist. And then, um, and then some of it actually ended up being just kind of weird, happy accident that I didn't really, uh, I didn't really intend, but I'm like, Oh, that, that seems like I really planned that out. Like, um, <laughs> like the injury that he sustains as a child. Right. Uh, it, I just needed like, I, I needed an injury for like, I needed him to be scarred like to some degree. <laughs> And I'm like, well, you've seen so much of him. You've never taken his gloves off. So, like, mm-hmm. I'll just put it on his hand. And then I realize that the book is called The Hand of Destiny. You know, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that's brilliant. Like, his hand is injured. And it's because of these reasons. And I'm like, oh, that, that really seems like I planned that. But in real, like, realistically, I just did that because uh, it was the only part of me really hadn't seen. And mm-hmm. I could put a scar there. I'm like, okay, you, know, like, you didn't notice the scar, you know, when he was in the shower the first time. So, um mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, you know, some of that was happy accident. And then some of it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I want to make sure I hit these themes. And, you know, like these, these are important. Um, and, and I think that, you know, um, yeah, they're, they're just kind of like notions that kind of keep turning over and over in my head. But, but yeah, mm-hmm. thanks, thanks for that, for the appreciation of the writing. Cause I, you know, I, I set the book and the art style too, kind of, it, it all services that like, to me, the heyday of the luchador is like the mid 1960s when they're like El Santo mm-hmm. and Blue Demon are making movies and El Mascaras and like the, um, the celebrity, the notoriety, like never really gets as big as it does, like in the mid '60s in Mexico. And so, to me, it was just important that the the story happened then. And I, at the time, I'd been fooling around with this kind of like faux Kirby Marvel House style, and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to do the book that way. Like, I'm just going to make it look like an old '60s comic book. And then when I came time to write it, it was like, oh, I should just write it like Stan Lee wrote it in like 1963. Like, I should just get that real kind of purple prose and that that uh, that melodrama, that operatic tone suits lucha libre and wrestling in general so perfectly that uh, you know those all kind of like just fell into place it was just interests of mine that uh that all kind of like lined up in this kind of perfect storm of a project and then um and then the color palette i'm like well i'm not going to do the kind of like i wanted to do a limited color palette because it it needed to look like a 60s color uh, like you know like i i uh, i wanted to build it in such a way that you could have cut film and made this coloring happen in Mm. 1963 uh, mm-hmm. So no blends, no, no, no gradients, you know, no, no, uh, no feathered edges on anything. Um, mm-hmm. All cut film, you know, like as if, you know, it was a limited color palette. But I, I took that that uh, superhero primaries and I shifted it all into like a very deliberately like Mexican color palette. Because, I w- again, I wanted to kind of express the the vibrancy of my culture. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in doing that, it, it, it what it does is it takes a very kind of Anglo hero paradigm and it shifts it and appropriates it into like being this like very like Mexican thing now. And in doing so is kind of a statement in and of itself. It's like a meta contact, you know, or a meta commentary on like hero paragon, like ideals, like what, what it means to be a hero. And, and I think that like visually shifting it over into a, a palette that's, a, that's beyond, uh, you know, what you're used to in that, that era of superhero comics kind of, you know, lends to the narrative, you know, on a, on a kind of a visceral level. Like you don't really, you know, it's the way that like the the color palette and the Watchmen works, right? Like you don't kind of notice it, but it it saturates you that you see like, oh, this isn't all the primary; it's it's secondary colors, and like that that kind of like shift, kind of like you feel it in a way that mm-hmm. um that you don't uh, 
necessarily cognate, you know, you, you don't verbalize, but you definitely feel it. And that's what I wanted for this is, is that I wanted people to feel the Mexican coming off of it and not necessarily mm-hmm. have to point at it. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing that you do in here, and I know a little, like I said, I, I, I studied Spanish. I've lost a lot of it yep. over the years. I haven't used it. But one of the things I remember very strongly about the Spanish language is that you have the upside down question mark and exclamation point at the beginning of a sentence. Yes. And even in the English, you do that yes. on here, <laughs> which I found that kind of interesting. Was that? Well, uh, that was you know, my uh, attempt at like I, I kind of wanted to give the notion that this is uh, it's still in Spanish, although you're reading it in English. But I didn't <laughs> want to like put the little brackets in the translated from Spanish. But like I wanted you to know that these are Mexicans talking to Mexicans. So they would be talking in Spanish. But occasionally there's just a little bit of Spanish that doesn't really have an English equivalent. And so I say them in like in the, the Spanglish that I would use, like I don't you know, there's uh there's just things that I'd never call by their English names. Like there's things in my life, like, you know, in as much as I'm, you know, Chicano and I'm like, you know, third generation American and I sound like this, mm-hmm. um, I do still have a few things that like, I would never, uh, I would never use the English word for. And mm-hmm. it's just dumb, like little kid things because my grandparents would babysit us and they would, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, um, yeah, there's just in my head, there's no real like English equivalent to them. And so I, I, uh, I put them in, 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 I kept those in Spanish, you know, were applicable but um i uh, i did want people to kind of give give the sense that these are still mexican speaking to each other in their native tongue hence the upside down question marks and excellent upside down exclamation points and even the sound effects more mm-hmm. often than not have the the their explanation points or question marks uh with the upside down one again just to you know make it feel more mexican Mm-hmm. Well, because that was funny. Because to me, I I I wasn't sure what to think about it because it was still English, but it had those those things going on with it. And I was like, "That's I gotta ask him about that because that's really yeah. interesting." Well, I, I gotta tell you, one of my favorite moments in in all like that, I, like I literally when I drew it and I I had to like step away from the table and kind of like pat myself on the back, and I don't do that too often. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, there's a moment in issue six, I want to say, where um, I wanted to show silently that he was having an epiphany like but mm. i didn't want him to go like aha or anything like that and mm. i thought about like a thought bubble and i thought about different ways to kind of showing this aha moment and i was like man i'm just gonna put a light bulb next to him because that's like the universal symbol for idea yes, and then i was is. like oh you know what i'll put two light bulbs the first one will be upside down and the second one will be right side up because he's having a mexican idea and when i drew that <laughs> i just had to like i just walked away from my art table and was like that is the best thing I've ever thought of in my entire life. I will yes. never get better than that that idea right there. I see. It's on what page one eighty, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh it's before he uh he executes his plan. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing we talk, just, one of the things we talk I about. See yes. that. That's very cute, very cool. Now, and of course, right there is where he does the thing that I think wrestling fans are probably going to be quite irate about. Yes, yes. Right, right. That whole business right there is happening because, in fact, you can see all the other characters going, Argh! Yeah, yeah. Well, it has an effect. I mean, there's a there's a latent kind of mysticism that, ex- in, that exists here that is never going to be defined. Like, I, I, in my head, I kind of have, like, a mythology behind it. I'm never mm-hmm. going to spell it out because it needs to be unstable molecules. It just needs mm-hmm. to be, you know, whatever it needs to be for the story story uh you know like there is a a certain amount of of magic and to me it's just the you know it's the magic of belief you know it's it's the you know that sort of thing but um but it's it kind of goes beyond that because you do see the effect on different people that uh you know and that's that's their spell you know uh that's the effect that that his interruption of their spell has on them 
uh, to be it, vague it, about it. <laughs> it's really, yeah, I was stunned when I saw that. I'm oh. going to be real honest with you because I knew how, that's one thing, I, one of the few things I understand about wrestling is it's how important that moment is. Yes. I mean, I, <laughs> I wanted to, I mean, obviously it's a big moment. It's a double page spread and, you know, like I, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I really wanted to, you know, there's a lot of kind of like visual conveyance of like, like what I want people to feel. Uh, it, it, I, I, I'm kind of over comic books telling people stuff. There's a lot of telling, mm-hmm. a lot of dialogue, a lot of information dumps. And, um, you know, to me, I think a comic should always be about like what's happening and not what's being said so much. Like, you know, the, what's being said should supplement what's happening. But, um, but yeah, show don't tell, I guess is kind of the, 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 the yeah. shorthand for that. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of some writers have, have gotten away from that where they're just, uh, yeah. you know, they wanted well, to tell people stuff as opposed to see, showing them stuff. Uh, well, let me ask you something though, because this is it has something to do with. I always ask people: Okay, are you an artist who writes or a writer who draws? Um, ooh, that's a good. Um, I'm an artist who writes. I would okay. say more than anything, because at the end of the day, uh, whenever I talk to um, to like young aspiring artists or young aspiring writers or people who want to get into comic books, um, and even when I work in advertising is like uh, nobody cares about what you wrote and nobody cares about what you draw. They care about how they feel about what you wrote and drew. Mm-hmm. And so everything on the page should elicit an emotional response from your audience, from how big it is on the page, with the angle mm-hmm. you chose to, fr- to frame it at, uh, mm-hmm. the, its relation to other panels, the color palette you use, to the words that are coming out of their mouth. All of that should should go, what is like, you know, you know, in, in advertising, what I always say is like, you know, when I'm talking to clients is like, what are we really selling? And mm-hmm. that's the thing that you should pull out of them, you know, and I've, I've got a whole advertising diatribe I can go on. But anyway, <laughs> I, I won't bore you with that. But it's like, you know, if what is this panel about? Is it about um, if it's about anger, it should look angry. If it's about calm, it should look calm, you know, from from the size of it in relation to the other panels to where it sits on the page to how you frame what's in there. It, you know, and and what is this two page spread about? Where does it like there should always be some kind of journey across the two pages that you have open in front of you from the upper left to the lower right. You should go somewhere. It should start calm and get angry. It should start, you know, quiet and get loud. It should, you know, or vice versa, you know, it should, it should, you know, start confused and then, you know, end with, uh, with, uh, understanding or vice, you know, like there should be some movement to comic books. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, some people have like lost that in it. And that is, uh, that is about feeling, you know what I mean? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's not about like, you know, you don't want the, upper left hand talking head to go like i'm angry and then the lower right to be like oh i'm calm now like you know it it, it should be apparent and mm-hmm. and visceral more than it should be said to uh you know to the audience and and, and as an artist i want to craft experience more than i want to just tell you a story like you know if i'm going to ask someone for 350 to buy a comic or the 25 bucks to buy the trade like at the end of the day, I want them to have experienced something more than I just want to tell them a story. I want, like, I want them to feel the tooth of the paper. I want them to smell the ink coming off of there. I want them to see the 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 absurdity and the the dynamism and all the things you can only do in a comic book. And it should go somewhere, and as opposed to just like a series of events that have happened. Like I want to, I want to give someone experience. Uh, so in that regard, like that's the extent of like my storytelling and the words that I use, the writing that I do only services the experience as as well as the art but i think that i'm just maybe a little more well versed in the or more experienced in the art part of it because i've been doing that most of my life uh and it's it's only been with this comic that the the writing has had the I, i've had to do that part of it 
But you see, you have an advantage over writers who draw. Yeah. Writers feel like they've got to describe everything. So you, as an artist, you understand. And I always think, too, that people, some of my favorite writers used to work in movies. They understand the visual and and the importance of that. And a lot of times, when I turn a page and it's like a gray blob of text, I yeah. literally jump over that and I say, okay, they'll explain that to me visually later on. What, what's all this about? Cause it's too much for me to go through and read all the words. And I think sometimes, and I can name certain writers, which I won't, <laughs> yeah. but they, they sit there and they feel it's important for them to describe everything where a comic oh, yeah. is. I like the point. Yeah. Writers love words. They love their words. <laughs> well, of course. But, but the bad news is, is that comics are a visual medium. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, so the benefit I have of being the one man shop that I am is that, um, I write, I work Marvel style with myself. Like my, my kind of you know, marching orders for what I'm going to do, uh, for an issue is like, oh, okay, he needs to start here, do this, end up here. And that's about it. And then I go to my thumbnails and I thumbnail all 22 pages out at the same time. So I can see the kind of beats of it as a, at a glance. And I work out how to tell the story visually. And then what I can't tell visually, I know needs to be written. And like, right. I, I, you know, so like, I, I'm really kind of, I'm trying to make my job as a writer uh, as small as possible. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I'm just really trying to like, okay, let me do this as much as a, a, a GI Joe silent issue as I can. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to put some words in here, but sometimes, mm-hmm. I mean, like, there are places in there that get a little verbose, but I think the, the, the verbosity, I guess, for lack of, or how verbo- verbose they get is, um, serves a purpose, right? Like, you know, he's great. Like, right. They're grandstanding. And so he's saying a bunch of things, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of my favorite scenes in there don't have any words in them at all. Like I, I mm-hmm. thought about like this really long way of kind of explaining the importance of the mask and what it means to him and this and that and the other thing. And I ultimately did that in three panels. You know, mm-hmm. like him, him in the shower, you see the, you know, it's the outside of the shower, you see the mask and the towel yeah. hanging there, you see the mask is gone, and then you see the towel is gone. And that's all you need to know about the mask, is that mm-hmm. when he's naked, when he, when he is totally vulnerable, the first thing that he goes for to, to cover his nakedness, to feel less vulnerable, isn't a towel, he's not putting that around his waist, the first mm-hmm. thing he grabs is his mask. Because that 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 takes priority over the rest of his, his nakedness, and that that kind of speaks volumes as opposed to me, like having to say, like, this is why the mask is important and him, like having to like explain it to someone or giving some audience proxy that need, it needs to be explained to in unforced exposition or whatever. Like, like, how can I, how can I, you know, uh, you know, there's been, again, like coming back to movies, there's some great moments in movies that I think about where I'm like, that's everything I need to know about that character right there. Like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whatever problems people might have with fight club, uh, in today's you know world, um, there's a great scene where they're leaving the bar and Tyler mm-hmm. Durden goes over to the like he's not even going to use the phone. He just goes to the payphone to see that if there's money in the in the change return. And mm-hmm. it's like and it's not even it's never mentioned. Nobody talks about it. It's a small little character moment. And you're like that tells me everything I need to go about that guy. That he's the kind of guy who will look anywhere to find something free. You know, if I can find free money in there, perfect. I've got you know it's a quarter closer to whatever pack of cigarettes I'm going to buy later in the day. Like that because I know that guy. And we all know that guy, right? So mm-hmm. it, it's those kind of like those moments of um. Of, of intimacy that go un unpointed at and unemphasized that build actual characters uh, as opposed to like someone turning to the camera and saying this, I'm the kind of guy we're having the weird caption boxes now where, where, um, where they tell you what they're, you know, what they're thinking. And I, that was one of the things I got to do in the first issue that I thought was, was fun was like, I was so sick of, you know, like comics got rid of thought bubbles in place of narration boxes, which are the right. same thing, but everyone right. thinks they're not, you know, they're somehow less, you know, it's, it's more real or, or more noirish or whatever. And I was just, I, you know, speaking of Batman, I was so tired of 
you know, of, of the Batman noir thought bubble narration boxes running through all of these that um, when I get to that first fight in issue one, where he's like, yeah, this isn't where I get into like what I'm thinking. Like, that's like, like, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you, I'm like, there is no, and like, to be honest with you, there is no thinking. And I thought that was mm-hmm. like, like my kind of like anti, like, uh, yeah, yeah. So sorry. I, <laughs> I got, all I remember that. That's okay. No, I no, I remember that. I, I um, gosh, you, you remind me so much. Uh, you know, the visuals uh, in a movie. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Field of Dreams. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I the I saw it right around the time when my dad passed. Oh, I'm sorry. And he reminded me very much of his father in the movie. And so when he, at the very end, you know, he's, he's been throwing, he, he's there and the catcher stands up and he takes his mask off and it's his father. And I remember I just went, because, oh, you know, he reminded me so much of my dad. I, I couldn't in the, everybody else in the world told me, oh, we saw that coming a mile away. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did not. And I was so shocked when I saw that, because, you know, it was like my dad coming back to life all of a sudden, you know, I was just to this day, it's still one of my very favorite movie moments, but it's the visuals. I mean, yeah, yeah. He set it up that way that when he stands up and I remember sitting there and he looks and everybody looks over and he stands up and he pulls off the mask and I, I, I almost lost it right there. Oh, nice. I, I blubbered the rest of the way. In the movie. <laughs> Cause yeah, you know, because the, the visual, they get into your head. Uh, they sneak into your head in a way that, um, you know, that, 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 uh, that you feel more like, you, you know, you, you can't, uh, you know, you're just taking in visual information. They, they happen on such a, a reptilian level that mm-hmm. you, you, you don't have, uh, you know, it's that like amygdala part of your brain. That's like making emotional decisions before that information even gets to like the frontal <laughs> cortex and like the thinking part of your brain. And so, yeah, there, the, um, yeah, like that's why I'm trying to tell as much story as I possibly can via visuals and then um you know the words are there to kind of uh add color i guess for lack of a better term <laughs> that's an interesting way to put it now it's funny is i still every once in a while go to youtube and i watch that sequence out of the movie i don't watch the whole movie i just watch that little sequence yeah out of the whole movie because i still get that emotional reaction from it now one of the things i did want to compliment you on as well each chapter starts out with a quote yes which I really liked, very literate uh, way to start that, and ver- different kinds of quotes too as you go through. And also, there's a little description as to, you know, not giving anything away, but describing what we're going to see mm-hmm. in the chapter, which I really liked. I mean, I I wish more comics did that. Are Are you going to continue that in in the second volume? Uh, well, I'll, I'll do what I did. Uh, I'll, I'll do it when I collect it. So I, um, yeah, like w- when I do the single issues, I will still have the quotes in the in the beginning because I just I I like those kind of. Um, because these are all, all of these notions that are like explored throughout the book, they're all kind of, uh, well-worn areas. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're areas of life that people have contemplated, you know, for, for a long time. And, and they do kind of like, you know, my influences are a little like, you know, some Eastern philosophy and some kind of like Western philosophy. And some of it is just like literary kind of, you know, um, things, but it, you know, um, I just wanted to kind of thematically set the tone for like what the issues are going to be about, um, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm definitely going to do those in the issues, and then the trade paperbacks. I'll do the same thing with the chapter breaks. I just like having those clean chapter breaks with the covers in there because so many, you know, comics now when they go to trade paperback, they'll either put the covers in the back or they won't put the covers in there at all. And I know mm-hmm. that, like, you know, my, the trade paperback was basically everything I like about trade, like good trade paperbacks. Like that was my mm-hmm. kind of goal. Is like I, I, you know, there's all that process stuff that's in the back matter. Uh, there's all pinups by other artists. Like because those are all things that I love 
in uh, in trade paperbacks, like in their back matter. Um, and it's stuff you don't see all the time. Like I, I think like amongst the most lazy things in the world is when someone has like, oh, 20 pages of bonus material and 10 of those are just the script, you know, like, typed out. I'm like, what? why would I want to read the script? Like, you know, show me some making of stuff. Show me some stuff that's kind of not on the page. Like the things that, you know, that, you know, or how you put it together, how this happened, you know, like um, was it Ari Gronoff? I used to have a really great website that literally like broke down his process like 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 with the photoshop layers like this is what this layer does this is what that layer does and show how they all work together and i'm like i get so many questions at conventions about how i do my artwork i'm like all right, i'm gonna just do a diagram of my photoshop pages and show people what it looks like how how i get there or uh you know and, and people asking about my color palette all the time all right cool i'm gonna do two pages on like just how i pick my color palette and and so i just i built the book that i wanted to read and what i thought would be exciting and the, the same with like you know, i know people like like the covers in there when they when they get a trade paperback. So I put the covers in there and they like cha- clean chapter breaks and they like page numbers so they can find their way through the book and that sort of thing. So it's like, yeah, all right, cool. I'm going to I'm going to do everything I that people like and that I like and put it in the book. And so mm-hmm. I will continue to do those uh, definitely on the next trade paperback. If you would let me read the very first one in chapter one. OK, it's, it's a great quote. And I love it. It says a person often meets his destiny on the road he took to avoid it. I love that quote. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, that, that's like one of those, you know, it's the idea of, of destiny. Like, can't, you know, it's the Oedipus kind of question, right? Like, can you avoid your destiny? Because, you know, Oedipus gets on the road to get away from the thing that he was told, like, oh, you're destined to kill your father. All right, I'm getting out of here because I don't want to kill my dad. On, the, on his way out of town, he meets the guy who's actually his dad and kills him. Like, I love, I love that, right? Like, like, destiny can't be avoided. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so that, that was the, 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 the quote I pulled out of there. Super. I it's just because I, I work on a little paper and they always put a little quote at the beginning. I'm saving that. <laughs> so I'm going to put that in one of the papers. You'll see that on top of this little paper that I work on. Oh, nice. Very so, cool. But like very, I, I love that. See, that's very literate to me. I, that's just perfect as far as, you know, the way to do it. Tell us what's coming, but don't reveal too yeah, much. Yeah, exactly. Like you give a feel for that. Again, it's that feel like, right. That's kind of mm-hmm. setting a tone and, and uh, yeah. And not just, you know, telling people a bunch of stuff. That's <laughs> yeah. just great stuff. It's, it's a wonderful book. Oh, I have you. to tell you, it's terrific. You're off as we're recording this a little early. You're off to a good start. So I'm, 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 I'm I think this is going to happen, and it's going to be great. I can't wait for it to come. I. Well, we should probably uh, be clear to uh, to the listeners. Like, so this series one has happened. It's out in the world. Uh, we're, what I'm here promoting is that series two is is being crowdfunded through Zoop. And so, uh, you know, if people want to head over to zoop.gg, uh, which is uh, I'm on the front page there. Um, yeah, it, it, uh, they can support that. But but if you if you haven't got series one or you haven't read a series one, I think almost all of the reward levels, if you back series two, end up with at least a PDF of series one. So you can get caught up. Uh, I'm going to try to make series two as standalone as possible so that you're not really you don't have to have read issue or series one to, to deal with, you know, to to see what's happening or to enjoy series two. Uh, but also if you want, you can order series one, like right now uh, via Amazon or Barnes and Noble or target.com. Like the image version is for sure out there in the world. You can just Google search Lamano del Destino and put in shopping and it'll, it'll come up. So, mm-hmm. so I, the quote that I really get, and the last thing I want to talk with you about yeah, on your website, which is jgonzodesigns.com, You have some quotes in there. Yeah. And one of them's, Stop me in my tracks. Okay. <laughs> I've got to ask you about it. All right. So I've always believed that my job as an illustrator was not to simply reflect reality, but rather to abbreviate it. Mm-hmm. 
that made me stop in my tracks because you know comics are are well known for spreading things out these days yes uh, you know six issues to tell one story used to take one issue so I, I, I was really interested to, I would like for you to comment a little bit more about that on okay. abbreviating reality, which is something I, I, I find a really interesting. <laughs> okay. So, wow, this, 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 uh, just so you know, buckle up. Cause this is, this is kind of, this could be a little long. So okay. um, th- those quotes are all things that I just say all the time. Like they're there okay. when I came to my website, um, you know, they're in, in, they're kind of my overarching philosophy toward the different areas that are exemplified on my site. So like when I talk about mm-hmm. graphic design, I talk about my overarching philosophy with design. When I talk about illustration, I talk about the illustration and again, the, um, the same with like art direction anyway. Um, so I, um, you know, and this is something I've, I've kind of interrogated recently because, you know, my my kind of uh, aesthetic ethos is is a uh, is an ad hoc assemblage of all these notions I've had since, you know, I've studied art academically. You know, I got into the Orange County High School of the Arts at, you know, in 88. Right. So it's been like 30 plus years of me kind of like, you know, I, I'm reading, um, you know, art as experience. I'm, I'm reading, you know, like uh, all of these kind of like philosophical kind of like uh, uh, approaches toward uh, for toward art. Um, and I internalized them to various degrees, but I was also like started that at like 15 years of age. So I really wanted like recently I've kind of like gone back and reread James Dewey's art as experience and things like that. But, um, but that overall thought is like, um, as an illustrator, especially not as a fine artist, but as an illustrator, um, you, you're, uh, again, you're, you're pulling emotional response from your viewer. Right. And, and like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Descartes says that, you know, like, um, it's the viewer who compute, who completes the painting. Right. And mm-hmm. so um, you're asking, and even with comic books, you're asking the viewer and the, the observer to co-author the story with you. <laughs> and so they're going to fill in the gaps with their experience. And the more they have to fill in, the more that it becomes personal to them because it's their personal experience that has to fill in the gaps. And so as an illustrator, if I draw, like I, I do this like presentation that I do to like students, uh, you know, like high school and up, um, where I start with this slide and it's like a, a like a black circle with uh, two triangles on top and little lines coming out. It's a basically it's an icon of a cat, and mm-hmm. and um and I say uh you know like what is this? And it's it's super simple. It's like four shapes, and every kid goes oh it's a cat, and I go no this is a cat. And the next slide is like a photograph of a tab of a tabby right you know and i'm like that's a cat and i go then i go back to the original slide i'm like this is the idea of a cat this is an icon of a cat <laughs> and because it's simple and this goes back to like uh understanding comics like uh, mcleod talks about this like the kind of masking effect the simple the simple one the idea of the cat becomes every cat you've ever known that photograph of the tabby only can ever be that tabby and <laughs> you know you may or may not have a relationship to that but when i when I elicit from you the idea of a cat, now every thought you have about it like lives in there simultaneously, good, bad, indifferent, all of that lives there. And and so I get more emotional involvement from you than just you taking in the visualization of like, oh, that's that tabby. And so when it comes to visual storytelling or even visual representation, fidelity to source material or fidelity to naturalism um, can only get you so far. You know, now it's just a guy in a costume. Whereas mm-hmm. like, you know, the Alex Ross fully rendered painted Superman is kind of just a guy in a costume, you know, a cosplayer. <laughs> it's almost real. Whereas like when Siegel and Schuster did it, it's the idea of heroism in an icon in blue and red on the paper. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so, you know, 
the Alex Ross Superman can ever be only ever be that actor in that costume on that set mm-hmm. lit that way. Mm-hmm. The the simple Siegel and Schuster version from the 30s and the 40s that's the entire idea of heroism encapsulated in in two colors or you know on 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 paper. And mm-hmm. so the more you can lean toward iconography and 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 away from literalism, the more um personal involvement and entanglement you get with the re- the reader and the more personal it becomes because they're filling in all that extra information <laughs> and and honestly most of what i'm being paid for as a professional illustrator is synthesis it's point of view it's like you know what does a head look like to me you know mm-hmm. and, and all of the great art has um exaggerations omissions uh emphasis all of that to varying degree you know like is more interesting than than realism, you know, because we're we live in a post photographic age, right? So, mm-hmm. like, I can see anything, and and mm-hmm. and um, you know, and and have it manipulated a bazillion different ways. But when, but when somebody like starts taking stuff away, and they're like, you know, like we get into like abstract, you know, we get into the the, the abstracts, uh, you know, like cubist and what have you. It's like, um, you know, this this is the idea of a woman descending a staircase as opposed to mm-hmm. literally a woman descending a staircase. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, his idea of a woman descending a staircase is about the motion. It's about the repetition. Mm-hmm. It's about the rhythm of it as opposed to a photorealistic representation of an actual woman descending a staircase. And that's more compelling than than the, the, the to me anyway, it's more compelling than 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 what the um, a photographic represent like a neoclassicist you know, view of that would be. And so, um, yeah, like I, I, I think that the the more you can whittle off of literalism, the more involved your audience becomes, and and kind of the more you know, like the more you can take off. I think the more skilled an illustrator you can be. You know, like you look at someone like you know Hirschfeld and those illustrations that he did. And I'm like, some of them are like five lines, but you're like, oh man, that is the energy of uh, Leonard Nimoy or whoever you know, like uh, whatever actor of the from the 60s and 50s he was illustrating. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, I, I encourage everybody to look at, you know, a, a Hirschfeld caricature of, of uh, a famous person and you get the energy of them more than you get the every, you know, strand of hair and every wrinkle on them. Um, and to me, that's always going to be more uh, again, it, it, it tickles that lizard part of your brain. It, it, it's going to be more resonant because it hits a more base part of your brain than than just mm-hmm. the analytical, like, you know, uh, you know, pros and cons of like. You know, and there's there's more room for success there, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you know, does it look like an apple? They're like, yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> like, yes, it looks photographically like an apple or it doesn't. But if I'm just, you know, taking the icon from like the back of my computer, like that's also an apple. Mm-hmm. And that to me is more engaging than like something that's like, you know, super, you know, technically proficient. And mm-hmm. um, and honestly, I, I reached the level of, you know, I, this is going to sound like kind of, you know, braggardly. I reached that level of comp- you know, technical competence in like, you know, 16 like I can draw pictures that look like photographs at like 16. It disinterests me to no end. It like, it bores me. Like I can't, I can't stand realism in comics, you know, like uh, uh, because they're fantastical and they should be. You know, what's interesting is I have a friend of mine who hates Alex Ross. Okay. <laughs> and the reason he hates Alex Ross's stuff is because his drawings are too real. Exactly. Yeah. I, I never I, got that until just now. Yeah. I appreciate the technical competency there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And he does do a little bit of, exaggeration and his lighting is recently uh the past like five to ten years has been a a lot more experimental i love that expressionistic aspect of Mm -hmm. it yeah like i I think expression from art to me should be its paramount goal and Mm -hmm. not technical proficiency especially you know in a world and people like the cubists were a reaction to 
photography. They're like, well, now people can just see anything. Like they can take mm-hmm. a picture of it. But what they can't see is my synthesis. They can't get my point of view. And that's what I'm going to lean into. And mm. so, uh, and so guys like Duchamp and, 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 uh, and Picasso and those guys were like, well, let's, let's be about um, formal exploration as opposed to technical exploration. And I think formal exploration, especially in the hands of enthusiastic amateurs is always more interesting than technical proficiency. Like I, you know, I'm a guy who I just can't get behind like some, I I don't want to get into arguments with people. There are bands in the world who are just ripe with technical proficiency and they're huge Mm -hmm. acts and people mm-hmm. love the virtuosity of that kind of technical proficiency, and it bores me to tears. I will take four people who barely know how to play their instruments singing into crappy equipment with feeling and emotion mm-hmm. any day of the week, as opposed to your twelve-piece ensemble that's doing music in like you know seven-five time or whatever you know jazz nonsense they want to get into. It's like mm-hmm. it's it's always like you know that 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 urgency and and the advice I give to to young artists and, and young creatives of any time of any kind is uh is has been distilled down to this one thing it's like look you want to get into to to being a professional artist draw like you mean it Mm. and that's that's all i really you know that's all i that's 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 it that's all that's the best advice you can give anyone like if you if you're if what you mean is that kind of crude rushed craggly whatever janky you know but but your heart's in it man people smell that coming off of the drawings more than technical proficiency people can smell a money grab and trend chasing a mile away, especially in the, the age of the internet. But authenticity, regardless of skill level and execution level, will always have a place in the market uh, because people sense the love coming off of something. And, and so, yeah, draw like you mean it and, and don't worry about um, – you know, technical proficiency. We'll have to do this again sometime. Okay. So I, I, I have a feeling we could talk for a lot longer. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I said, so, this is going to be a long, like a long answer. It's okay. It, it's great and fun. It's very interesting and stuff. So we'll have to do this again. Oh, for sure. But back to the point that we okay. want to get so much fun, but it's La Mano del Destino and it's at zoop.gg. Get on there as quickly as you can and be sure to support it because we want to get a lot more of this good stuff and we want to keep Gonzo busy. Oh, yeah, please, sure. please. Thank you. <laughs> People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. As a man, I'm flesh and blood. I can be ignored. I can be destroyed, but it's a symbol. Get the latest from the comics universe. News. Interviews, previews, and reviews. Listen to the weekly Wayne's Comics Podcast so you can keep reading your comics. And that's it for this week. Be back next time we'll have another great interview with another terrific comics creator. But until then, keep reading your comics.
Tell me if this sounds familiar. You hacked league systems, disobeyed protocol, and endangered your lives. And your initiative resulted in the capture of three escaped felons, proving Warden Strange runs Bell Rev as a cover for criminal activity. Well done. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See JDPower.com slash awards for 2022 details.